Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I am joined by Anne Price and Linda Sheehan from our clinical ethics team at Sydney Health Ethics. Hi, Anne. Hi, Linda. Hi. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Excellent. Um, So, Anne and Linda, you're the first of our clinical ethics team to be on the podcast with me, and hopefully we'll have some other members of the team. But I'm hoping that you can introduce our listeners to what clinical ethics is and what each of you do. So maybe I'll ask each of you in turn just to kind of introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Anne, do you want to go first? Sure. So um, my name's Anne Pryor, as I said, and I'm the clinical ethics lead uh, for the Sydney Children's Hospital Network. So that encompasses uh, Randwick Hospital, Children's Hospital, and also Children's Hospital Westmead, but also Bear College, which is our hospice. So it's quite a big area. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And what about you, Linda? Um, yeah, thanks, Kate. I'm the clinical ethics consultant. I run the clinical ethics support service at Southeast Sydney Local Health District. Um, again, like Anne, it's a fairly big geographical area. There's sort of four major um, tertiary referral hospitals in there, community services and the Royal Hospital for Women. I guess my other hat is I'm a, a clinician in the rest of my time. I'm a palliative care physician. I work primarily down at St George Hospital here in Sydney. Wow, very busy people spread across multiple hospital campuses, it sounds like. So um, I guess I wanted to ask you, what is clinical ethics at the level of your practice? What is it that you do when you do clinical ethics? Do you want to start, Anne? (laughs) I mean, this is a question that gets asked frequently because I don't think there's great capacity and knowledge about what clinical ethics is. I mean, I think about it as what we ought to do in healthcare. I think there's a lot of what we can do as medical technologies increase. And the questions about complex dilemmas in clinical care are getting much more difficult as the possibilities become more possible. You know, we can now keep a child alive pretty much indefinitely, you know, the ICU mortality rates are dropping exponentially. They're now approximately 2.7% for most modern Western PICUs. So the questions then become, what should we do? And that then becomes a question of values. And so a lot of what we do is, is think about those things. We try and create reflective spaces, moral spaces to think about these things which are less possible now in modern day healthcare as we get acute care, time constraints and, Mm. you know, resourcing issues, uh, you know, increasing. So what clinical ethics tries to do is sort of multifactorial. I think one of our major uh, roles is in capacity building and education and helping people think about these things more broadly. And that occurs in you know, education sessions in um, looking retrospectively at ethical cases or clinical cases that have had ethical issues in them, and also grand rounds, those sort of things, forums, we do a lot of that. But we also do quite a lot of reflection um, by particular team, with particular teams, looking back at cases that they've found troubling or perplexing, and also our medical student teaching. So we try and infiltrate many, many areas of the healthcare setting and um, spread the word about clinical ethics and that it doesn't have all the answers. Our role is very non-directive. We, we try and support clinical decision-making in ways that are, 
um, supportive and not directive. Uh, models differ, but our, our model is to be um, supportive. So we try and highlight ethical principles, bring in uh, areas of philosophy and ethics more broadly as a system and bring it into the uh, clinical space. So as Linda often says, it's a translational um, way of working. And I think that really does encapsulate a lot of what we do, but we also do involve ourselves in research in, in, um, in certain areas and often in ways that integrate with particular clinical disciplines. And, and we really try and promote that because that actually helps capacity building. And the other thing we do is try and sort of develop the service and um, more as I suppose, keeping it alive, keeping it seeming, having a value in, in the modern day healthcare setting, which becomes more and more um, resource scarce. And so therefore our service often gets squeezed because uh, unless people understand it, they, they, they can't often see the value. Mm-hmm. That was pretty comprehensive. I'm not sure I have too much to add to that. I mean, I guess just to highlight a few things that Anne's probably already said, I think um, I think the modern healthcare system is increasingly complex. And we all have always known, I think, that values underpin decision-making in the healthcare setting. And I think as healthcare becomes increasingly complicated, navigating those values, understanding them, uh, mapping them and prioritising them can be increasingly complicated, particularly for healthcare practitioners and health service managers that may or may not have any sort of explicit training or experience in, in ethics or bioethics. Um, so I think, you know, clinical ethics really aims to help healthcare practitioners understand and explore the values at stake in healthcare decision-making in a systematic way um, and to reach decisions that really reflect that complexity in more robust or rigorous kind of fashion. Um, and, and sort of touched on the main kind of types of work, things you do in that, the capacity education piece is huge. We're constantly trying to help clinicians build their own capacity to understand the underlying values and how to navigate that complexity when they have to make clinical decisions. We also do, you know, hot case consultation where there is uncertainty or, or conflict about what should be done in a particular setting and uh, we can come in and help facilitate decision-making using sort of structured clinical ethics approaches and, and stakeholder engagement sort of techniques. Um, there's a huge organisational ethics piece, and that's really just about getting ethics at the table um, in the health service management space so that management and um, executive decision-makers can sort of, I guess, translate the values on the wall into practice and that's a huge part of a, of a structured clinical ethics service job in, in, the, in our setting here in particular. And then sort of finally, there's that research academic piece, which I know we're going to touch on a bit later, trying to keep that translational tool that Anne's talking about is really getting ethics out of the ivory towers of the university and translating it into a way that can be applied in practical terms in a clinical space. Um, so we try to keep uh, active in the academic research space um, connected in that space and really that's with a view to translating some of that stuff into sort of real world decision making in the in the clinical settings um, um, so yeah I, I mean Anne's summary about as she opened that is correct it's really a careful and deliberative analysis of the should in healthcare um, should we rather than can we is kind of the hardest thing I think as mm. complexity increases um, so mm. that, that's the domains in which we try to deliver that yeah. So that's a lot of different domains. And just to kind of capture that, it sounds like you've got one bit that's very education and capacity focused, 
trying to work with clinicians and also medical students. Then you've got one bit that is perhaps clinical case focused, and then you've got the research part. And I'm wondering with the clinical case part, what does that look like? Does that look like consults or is it something else? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, yep. It's clinical ethics case consultation. It's involving clinical ethics prospectively to help teams and interdisciplinary kind of groups understand the issues that are at play or the ethical underpinnings for particular areas of uncertainty or moral unease. And then using kind of clinical ethics approaches in a structured way, help the people who are involved in that decision-making understand that the pieces underneath and then more robustly navigate a way through to some consensus outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on the type of case referral as to exactly how that looks um, in terms of structure. Mm -hmm. um, I know for us, we sort of have three levels of case consultation, depending on the questions being asked or the, the specifics of the case itself. Uh, and and Anne's, um and the Sydney Children's Hospital Network structure around case consultation is slightly different to ours. But, uh, you know, the goals are the same. The goal is facilitative decision-making where essentially a resource for the clinicians to use to make better decisions for themselves. But it's a supportive role rather than the ethics police sort of role coming in and mm. giving advice. So it is like, you know, single case consultation, but... Um, it's approached very much in that iterative, deliberative, structured way to help the primary decision makers, the clinicians who are asking for help, navigate that complexity and come out with a more rigorous answer. And do you want to add anything to that? Yes, yeah, sure. So I guess um, one of the things in developing our service has been really thinking about what is the work of clinical ethics and sort of framing it in a way that sort of integrates all those elements that Linda's spoken about. Our levels of consultation, which are sort of one, two, and three, uh, there's a lot of crossover. And you've talked about, you know, capacity building and consultation being separate, but actually they completely inculcated into each other because, you know, often cases come out of the capacity building that we do. And, you know, someone will ask us about a case and that becomes a question or what we say is a level one consultation when it's just a question. And that is generally a confidential question that can be discussed briefly and may actually involve triaging to something like governance or law. So sometimes, you know, people um, don't fully understand. So it might be more a governance issue um, that requires that input. So we just triage that off or, or a medical legal issue. But the level two um, consultations we think of as something that might involve us attending one of the clinical ethics service attending a um, multidisciplinary team meeting on a regular basis but it also might include our more complex um, specific educations like reflecting on an ethical case that has been um, so a retrospective review of a case and then our third level is what we call a clinical ethics response um, group response. So we would have, um, we have a group of clinicians and in, you know, people who are training in ethics and interested in ethics that we call on to respond to complex dilemmas that are generally uh, require a broader perspective from a group of clinicians. So that would mean um, getting all the clinicians that are involved in that case into the room, along with three or four of our um, clinical ethics response group, and then deliberating on that in a very sort of structured way. And so that's the sort of three levels of our um, consultation. And that uh, the third level involves then helping 
bring up options, but the team are the one who generates the options. I think that's important. They generate the plan. We just highlight the, the principles and the tensions, particularly when two or three or four even principles may be in tension and the, the complex part is how to um, prioritise those, those um, principles and to think about them in, in ways that actually can move things forward. Because as I think about it, you know, we have what we should do. We have law, which is what we can do, but in the middle is this sort of zone of clinical pragmatism or possibility where we have to decide what is possible in that context, in that space, with the resources we have, with the family constraints that we might be dealing with and with what's happening with that child at that time. So there's a lot of things in play and we consider that quite um, deeply with the clinicians, but clinical ethics has no separate authority. The authority always remains with the clinicians who've referred the case. Right. Thank you. That was really clear and helpful to give an idea of what the kind of different levels of a consultation that might happen. That's really helpful. So Just to say too that that's not everybody's love. That's no, the way we right. work, and that's where you know. So there are very differing models, and mm-hmm. some people have more of a, an ethics committee that um, responds, mm-hmm. you know, four times or gets together four times a year, um, and and cases are brought to that. But ours is a much more responsive model. We we aim to respond within forty eight hours. It's interesting okay. though, um, Kate. You know, as Anne was talking, you know, both of us have kind of come in on the ground level and are building these services, which is still very much in its infancy in terms of how far we're down that track in Australasia versus other countries around the world, Canada including, who've put a long way down the track about building and integrating clinical ethics support into their healthcare systems, whereas for Anne and I, we're sort of still trying to maintain getting traction and building awareness and then, I guess, creating trust, I suppose, so that we can play those sorts of roles in our various domains. But, and we both have quite different structures for our service because that sort of grassroots development is part, I suppose, of how to, to really get traction and buy-in. Um, but interestingly, it, over the years, we've actually morphed into those same three levels of consultation, even mm-hmm. with our different models. So for hot case consultation, we're pretty much the same. We have like that individual one-to-one, let's map the terrain, help you with your thinking and off you go and there's sort of that medium level where usually it's a team-based discussion um, where you're sort of facilitating the team's MDT style iterations of the case and kind of helping them get more informally I suppose to an outcome but being a resource as a part of that MDT and then there's that sort of top third level where you're using more traditional very structured um, deliberative clinical ethics approaches to help the team get to something else. So um, even though our models are quite different, actually, it's interesting to hear we've all morphed into those sort of different types of consultations in the single individual case sort of setting, despite the differences in structure. Yeah, that is really interesting. It's just important, I suppose, as Anne said, just to know that we don't have a mediation style model or a conflict Mm -hmm. resolution style model. Obviously, um, the, the North American context, it's sort of morphed much more into that sort of role. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of see ourselves very much on the opposite end of, of that. It's, a, it's about facilitating everybody's thinking um, around ethics-related values-based issues um, and trying to do that in a sort of a supportive way um, rather than having that explicit mediation role where there's conflict about what's best. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite different to that in the way we've set things up. And I've thought about that quite deeply because I am actually an accredited mediator. And so thinking about the American model of, you know, say Nancy Dubler who thinks of bioethics as mediation or there is a number of um, ways 
that that's pulled into our sort of um, way we work, but it's not, it's very different as Linda says. So um, mediation is about, you know, finding commonalities that's similar, um, but then it's about a sort of a particular outcome and, and, you know, and really sort of focusing on that, that outcome. Whereas I think the process is really important in what we do and how we do it. So one of the the really important um, things that I think, comes out of clinical ethics consultation is avoiding that group think that sometimes comes from um, just one discipline or uh, an MDT without a sort of wider veranda view of considering uh, weighing values. Mm-hmm. And sometimes certain groups sort of adhere to certain values, but they may, may also be other underlying things like just authority in the room or, mm-hmm. you know, some fundamental um you know, non-financial conflicts of interest that we don't know about, but that might sit underlying a lot of the decision-making and get conflated into things like best interests or, you know, beneficence. But we don't sort of, unless we unpack them, they don't really come out often in an MDT because you're focusing on a clinical question. And once you start thinking about ethical questions about what we should do, that stretches things wider and tries to, I suppose, challenge thinking with the out there question and, um tries to prevent the group think or the sort of anchoring into just one way of thinking. Yeah. I like that challenge thinking with the out there question. It's a real quotable quote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to take a minute to ask you about what your clinical ethics practice looks like at the level of researching issues, because you both mentioned research. And I'm very curious about whether or not you're seeing any real kind of hot button issues in your clinical practice or if there are any issues that you're actively engaged in doing more sort of academic style research or just even, you know, practice focused, but still delving deeper into certain kinds of issues. You do get um, themes of things that are coming through the door and that can sometimes guide you to going a bit deeper in an academic way into that space. So I know for our district, there's there's maybe three or four main ones over the last couple of years. We've been doing quite a lot of research um, into organ donation, particularly in um, organ donation after DCD. Um, And there's a number of papers that have come through an affiliated group at SHE that have been published over the last few years um, coming from George Skronsky's work as the lead on that project. He's one of our Mm -hmm. clinical ethics consultants in district. So um, organ donation has been a big issue for us. The other sort of interesting paces, I suppose, obviously in the context of COVID, there's been a lot of thinking um, around duties and obligations of healthcare professionals. Uh, So that's been sort of a recent piece of work that I've done with one of our uh, mental health CL liaison um, CNCs who sits on our ethics committee. And that's sort of work that's published about six months ago. We've also recently done a lot of work as an organisational ethics project around Um, high-cost drugs and individual patient use applications, sort of recognising that um, the the healthcare organisation and all the structures of the QUMC or the Drug and Therapeutics Committee deliberations is a bit ad hoc and there wasn't consistency and transparency in process as to how those sorts of deliberations are made. And so we sort of went deep into that and built a a decision-making matrix, if you like, so that DTCs can use consistent processes incorporating all the relevant pieces underneath to analyse and and think through the implications of saying yes or no to a particular individual patient use application. 
Um, and so that's sort of a bit of academic work that of recent sort of years um, we've been sort of delving into. Um, the other big ticket item for us in, in the future, actually, um, number one, we, we're constantly grappling with the issue of service evaluation and clinical ethics, and there's a huge literature out there demonstrating those issues, uh, which I won't reiterate here. Um, but as a service, we've been trying different ways of doing that, including very recently a, a qualitative study um, in one of our institutions for, I guess, trying to understand from the clinicians who used the service what it is they thought um, they got out of that and how valuable it was. And there's a paper coming out um, in the next couple of months relating to that. Um, and finally, the other big ticket item for us over the next three years and sort of core in our strategic plan is is really about clinical ethics supporting complex mental health. We get a lot of consultations in the complex mental health space and it really is very, very difficult area and often the usual clinical ethics approaches and tools aren't particularly helpful in that sort of setting and there's, a, there's I think, a lot of work to be done mapping how clinical ethics can better support clinicians who are navigating that complexity. And so I'd like to do um, that work over the next year or two with a couple of other interested clinicians and one of the academics from SHE. Um, so that's sort of our research interests at the moment, and I'll hand over to you for that. Mm. Thanks, Linda. Yeah, so um, we've had um, three, I suppose, major interests over the last two to three years. The first one was with um, healthcare professionals and families and conflict between both. So anecdotally and sort of reported over the world really globally, there's been an increase in aggression and um, even um, abuse within healthcare settings. Paediatric healthcare settings, because of the triad in decision-making, you know, even more complex in that space. So that element of, you know, behavioural aggression has been particularly challenging in the context of family-centred care. So what we've done, we've done some work on... um, sort of thinking about that, um, how we identify behaviours, given that families are often grief-stricken and um, anxious in a, in a new environment, and then tried to categorise those and, and research with a lot of focus groups and tried to develop a tool based on some work done by um, RCH Melbourne um, to really help support families through the pathway and to try and set reasonable boundaries for behaviours and that are proportionate. And so that work has been, um, it was supported by the CEC last year, um, the Clinical Excellence Commission through the leadership program. And so I completed that project in um, sort of the beginning of 2021, but it's ongoing because it's now trialling in four wards across the network, um, the tool, Um, which is a graded response rather than a zero tolerance approach, um, which I argue is very reactionary. So I've tried to take it back upstream and try and identify behaviours early so that um, staff can support families, manage expectations, identify anticipated grief reactions, uh, early signs like hypervigilance, which are quite well documented in the literature, and then um, try and prevent that sort of escalation to um, reactive violence. So that's been an ongoing project and is um, at the moment in a little bit of hiatus, just, you know, resources are always our challenge. So measuring and uh, educating and getting the quantitative parts of that out has been challenging. So I've sort of had a, had a um, pause with that, although it's um, now being look, looking like it's going to be simmed um, 
for the um, learning.kids, which will be sort of a tool that'll go out on learning.kids to help people understand the matrix itself. And the second um, part that I've been involved in is really more a collaborative project um, regarding sort of scoping uh, restraint practices in paediatrics. This is this has been a it's a really woolly area. Um, often children are held for you know venipuncture or just normal procedures, sometimes by parents, sometimes by staff. That's not necessarily discussed as restraint, but people don't really understand the definition levels of, you know, definitions of restraint truly and the clarity around that. And this is how this gets reported in terms of um, our KPIs for children's hospitals in terms of restraint. And yet the clarity is not around what that means in terms of, you know, seclusion, physical restraint and chemical restraint. It's very blurry. And so um, although there are some parameters in policies and guidelines, it's still not really clear. So one of the projects that's um, happening, I hope this year, is we've put in for ARC funding with three paediatric centres, Queensland, Melbourne and us, to scope uh, the practice of restraint in paediatrics and to see really what are what's actually happening so we can sort of start to balance that and think about it in in, um, terms of ethical considerations and and principles. So that's the work that's being done there. And then on third level, we've started a project this year for our medications and therapeutics committee, which is a network-wide one. So that's for drugs over $15,000 per year. Um, Individual patient uses, as um, Linda mentioned, is a particular issue because the costs for lifelong provision of those drugs for families and children is is incredibly expensive. So um, often they're based on compassionate use, uh, children who have no other uh, options. And so individual patient use considerations are very um, difficult to make decisions about in sort of one meeting when there's, you know, there can be a lot of IPUs coming in. So Mm -hmm. one of the things we're doing again is building on um, a whole lot of work and then actually trying to make a sort of um, more, a decision pathway tool that's very sort of accessible to to try and help clinicians and and the members of the committee. So we've actually done a qualitative survey to sort of start kick that off to um, involve members of the the committee. And then we're actually developing that um, to to bring a whole, there's still a whole lot of work into a fairly simple, well, relatively simple tool, which is going to be challenging, I think, but that's, that's where we're at with that, the decision-making tool, like a pathway. Wow. It's, there are so many very complex and very interesting topics that you're both working on. Yeah. And I would love to hear more about them. So we'll have to have you back onto the podcast at some point to talk about these projects. Um, just quickly before we wrap up, I was wondering if either of you or maybe each of you would have any advice for a person who is interested in getting into clinical ethics. Yes. I, I mean, I think, you know, find, you know, find groups that are interested, find um, connections, you know, often, uh, you know, people like ethics centers, they have um, groups that you can actually join in with Um, our, we have a clinical ethics discussion group uh, every month at both hospitals. It's if you're in health already, then you can join that. Um, If you're out of health, that's not so possible, but I would say, you know, connect with like-minded people, find, you know, if you're already in health, then there's lots of ways you can join um, in, in interest groups, come to forums, connect with places like Sydney Health Ethics. People are always really willing to sort of talk about ethics and to um, bring you in 
into those groups. And then I think it, it, it's really helpful if you think about what sort of background and training you would like to follow, because I think that you know, the good thing about ethics is that it does bring um, very multidisciplinary group, transdisciplinary group into um, the space. And I think that's a real value. It's not, it's not all doctors. It's not all, you know, one discipline, you know, it's not all philosophers. So that bringing that together is a really important part. I, my background is a, as a neuromuscular physio um, specialty in paediatrics in, in neonates, but, um, and first contact. But, you know, if I came into that space thinking about really, you know, what more can we do in health? You know, how can we make these decisions about capabilities really when, you know, people are being sent home and with sort of unable to walk or unable to sort of flourish in the terms so that, so finding the language for ethics was really important for me. So I would say follow that and, um, and then it'll, it'll lead you places maybe to a master's of bioethics as many universities doing that now, but also other courses that can take you further into your, follow your interests, philosophy and, um, you know, all sorts of like that. Linda? Yeah, I guess I'd just say that there's not really nice, clear pathways still <laughs> in the Australasian context. I mean, I sort of took time out of my clinical training and went over to Canada and did a fellowship in clinical and organisational ethics with the Joint Centre for Bioethics in Toronto um, because there was absolutely nothing happening here to actually really, for people who wanted to engage in this space, to skill up. Um, I think that is changing. As Anne said, there are now tertiary-level you know, training programs, if you like, master, mainly academic masters and PhD style um, academic training that can, I guess, get you to that next space in order to delve into the clinical ethics kind of domain. But it's not an, an easy space to get into, if you like. And part of, you know, the big challenge for Anne and I over the last four years or so is really about trying to re build a community of practice that's recognisable and engages with all the rights that pieces, including at the university level, so that people who are interested have a, an open door space to walk into so that they can, you know, unpack their interests and talk to people who are working in this space and explore, you know, not unusual opportunities that might get them into the area that they want to be in. So, I mean, before um, COVID kind of shut everything down, um, you know, Anne and I were running a, with our other colleagues in clinical ethics were having sort of a, a weekly clinical ethics salon at Sydney mm -hmm. Health Ethics and the, it was conceived mm -hmm. as that sort of forum where people could come to or be referred to if they expressed an interest to any of the other academics or healthcare professionals that we could say, yep, come and speak to this little community uh, on this day every, you know, second week uh, at Sydney Health Ethics. That's kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit um, in the context of COVID, but we have a virtual community of practice and we're very happy to hear from anyone who's interested in getting involved in clinical ethics in their various domains. Um, and Anne and I are both, I'm sure, constantly fielding questions about that and sort of directing people to different areas that align with their interests. But it is not, it's kind of a self-forged navigation still at this point with sort of scooping out the champions and finding people who think this work is worthwhile and then, you know, then building your own little niche in that in that area. Mm -hmm. I will say that both Anne and I and our services have set up fellowships um, for people who are interested in clinical ethics. Anne's fellowship is a, is a paid fellowship for healthcare professionals and doctors in particular. Ours is just an, uh, an open academic fellowship, if you like, unpaid, unfortunately, for people who 
want to do it as part of their, um, you know, master's work placement or just because they're interested to see what it all looks like um, and they come from a different academic background. So there are opportunities being fostered, I think, in different domains. So as I said, we're very welcome to hear from anybody who's interested in getting involved and helping them sort through what their options are in their particular domain. Awesome. So thank you so much to both of you for joining me. This was the beginning of a really great conversation and I hope to have each of you back on and other members of our clinical ethics team as well. Thanks, Thanks so much for having us, Kate. Oh, no problem. Yes, we enjoy, enjoyed it. It's really a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of She Research Podcast. You can find the links that we've just discussed in this episode's show notes along with a full transcript of our discussion. SheePod is hosted by Catherine McKay and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye.